Hello, I'm Julia Hobsbawm from Editorial Intelligence. Welcome. Thank you very much. Some people have attended previous briefings in snowdrifts here at Cass Business School, so even, even though it's unconscionably early, thank you very much, but in good weather. I'd like to thank our partners, the Cass Business School and, of course, the Financial Times. It would be tempting to feel smug about the timeliness of this event, but I will resist that temptation, but suffice to say that the uh, turnout this morning is testament to how timely it is. For those of you who don't know that much about editorial intelligence, there's some marketing material on your seats to assist you, but suffice to say that we make it our business to summarize and analyze every word of comment in the UK about every topic, and we uh, focus a lot on business and finance. I'm just going to hand over to Lionel to take you through the proceedings. Um, just to confirm again that this event is being podcast, it's recorded uh, as live, so any comments you do make will be on the record. And um, Lionel does not need that much introduction. The FT is obviously on a roll at the moment. He's one of the most garlanded editors of his generation, and he's going to take you through this morning's event. Thank you, Lionel. Well, thank you very much for that generous introduction. I, I think there are a few more distinguished people in this audience. Um, we have a great subject, credit crunch. Are we in global financial meltdown? Well, if you'd read the Financial Times this week and read Martin Wolf's column, America faces the mother of all meltdowns, uh, I think we should all pack up and go home. Uh, it might interest you to know, too, that Martin's column went up on Yahoo Finance within two minutes. It was also drudged, and it, the exposure was extraordinary. It was almost um, like watching the credit crisis unwind. Um, we have a very distinguished panel uh, of speakers here. Um, I'm going to introduce them one by one. Uh, they will give introductions, brief comments of five minutes, and then we'll open up to questions. Um, I would ask those who would like to speak, could they please identify themselves? Um, we can't have senior administration officials speaking on background. Just please introduce yourself and keep your questions brief. Um, and as Julia said, this is being podcast, so it's FT Live. Um, our first speaker is Simon Walker. He's chief executive of the British Private Equity and Venture Capital Association, which has been in the limelight recently. Um, between 2003 and 7, he worked at Reuters, first as Director of Com Corporate Communications and then Director of Corporate Communications and Marketing. Uh, he was a partner at Brunswick. He's had time at number 10 in a previous administration. He read PPE at Balliol College, Oxford, and was President of the Oxford Union. Over to you, Simon. Lionel, <clears throat> thank you very much. I'm really going to confine my remarks to the, the private equity and, and buyout area and talk about where, where we are in the current financial climate. Um, and the, the fourth quarter of last year was the quietest for five years for private equity and venture capital. Um, the value of private equity buyouts uh, fell to just below £3 billion from over £15 billion in the previous quarter. So that was a massive fall. Um, deal activity varies across the whole industry, and frankly, for smaller deals of less than $100 million, 
the buy-up business remains vigorous. In the mid-market, which we define as between 100 million and, and a billion pounds, I'm sorry, and I should have said pounds earlier, deals between 100 million and a billion pounds, there is life, but it's definitely being affected uh, by the credit crunch. The deals that are happening tend to involve high-quality, non-cyclical businesses. Uh, the deals are, are well-priced, meaning they're cheap, and we are noting that they have a much higher than usual proportion of equity. They're much less leveraged than they were before. For larger deals, above a billion pounds, investment banks are on strike, as far as we're concerned. In the last quarter of last year, there wasn't a single deal of the size done in Britain. And, and we think that until the banks start to sell on some of the loans they underwrote but failed to shift earlier in 2007, we think this part of the market is, is just about shut, and most of our members don't expect it to open until well into 2008. Um, we're here for the long term, and, and we expect to take advantage of market weakness, uh, of market weakness as we've done in cycles in the past. Uh, stormy weather gives private equity the opportunity to acquire assets that others don't want to invest in. Um, it also gives us the opportunity to use private equity's expertise at business improvement to make uh, good businesses better and rescue ailing firms that in the current climate might otherwise go to the wall. Um, the principle being that successful businesses are backed with well-targeted capital and badly performing businesses are reshaped again with, with well-targeted capital and expertise. So we think we still have a real purpose to serve in tough economic times. Um, economic predictions are, are gloomy, um, but we think we will weather the storm. Um, but is the credit crunch having an effect on us? Absolutely. Well, sober Simon. You would, have, you would have given a very different talk, I suspect, a year ago, but there we are. Um, Ian Marsh is our next speaker. Uh, he worked in the City of London as an international banker and financial economist for four years um, before starting a PhD at the University of Strathclyde. Um, he spent time in the IMF Research Department, uh, joined the economics faculty at Strathclyde on finishing his thesis, and he moved to Cass in 1998 as a senior lecturer in finance. He's also spent uh, academic time, uh, or time on leave in the financial stability area uh, of the Bank of England, managing a research team looking at international financial market issues. Ian. Thank you. I should apologise, first of all, ladies and gents. My kids have infected me, so I'm losing my voice. And I was teaching for six hours on the trot yesterday, so if I just stop halfway through, um, please forgive me. Um, I just wanted to talk about three items of research that I've been doing in the past, uh, following on from my stint at the Bank of England. I'm really an exchange rate forecaster, um, but I went to the Bank of England and they kind of broadened my horizons and let me do some other work, including credit risk. And, and when I left the Bank of England, I continued this secondary line of research. Um, I started off with some theoretical work looking at securitization, um, particularly securitization of credit risk and generally found that, that securitization is a good thing uh, in, in our theoretical framework. It improves the efficiency of the banking sector and it improves financial stability, which was obviously the focus of my research. But there are some big ifs. There are some conditions needing to be met. 
First of all, that risk really needs to leave the banking sector. If it doesn't leave the banking sector, then it becomes even more stringent, some of the conditions that have to be met. And it doesn't look like an awful lot of the credit risk did leave the banking sector. It just got shuffled around within the banking sector of the world. If the risk stays within the banking sector, then there are two extra conditions that need to be met for securitization to really be helping. First of all, loan growth must be restrained. The new loans that the banks give out couldn't overwhelm the advantages they've got from diversification through credit securitization. And secondly, the banks, of course, must continue to do their um, monitoring of the borrowers that they've got. So these two big conditions out there we then started to look at empirically. First of all, loan growth. We saw that credit default swaps, credit derivatives in general, obviously make credit risk management much more uh, efficient than the old tools that we had available. And we found this was giving a significant relaxation of constraints on bank lending behavior. We saw massive loan growth from banks which really adopted cutting-edge technology in terms of credit risk management. So now we've got a problem of, of rapid loan growth filtering through in banks that are using CLOs, CDSs, and so forth. Um, the question then is, do they continue to monitor? And this was the, the last piece of research I did. There's a standard finding in academic finance that when a company announces it's been given a loan by a bank, the assets, the equity of that company rise in value. The bank loan is seen as a good signal. Now, the better the bank giving the loan, the better the signal, normally. We confirmed that with some more recent data from the US where we could identify the borrower and the lending institution. But what we did find is that if the lending institution was known to be very active in credit securitization, the borrowing company got no kick to its equity. It got no positive information from this, suggesting that the market didn't value loans given by banks which are actively securitizing which our interpretation is the markets at least weren't thinking that the banks were properly monitoring and properly, secure, properly uh, screening their borrowers when they came in. Now the Economist has run with some um, articles from some academic colleagues in, in Chicago pointing out that this seems to have happened in the subprime marketplace. I'm pointing now that it also seems to have happened in the mainstream corporate loan sector, which is the one I was analyzing. And one of the most famous uh, students of a financial crisis would be Charles Kindleberger, and he said the one easy way of predicting that a financial crisis is coming along is if you get rapid, unmonitored credit growth. And my evidence suggests we've got rapid credit growth and it wasn't monitored. So in direct answer to the question at the, the top of our piece of paper, are we in global financial meltdown? Maybe not, but we're going that way, in my opinion. More sobriety, my goodness. Uh, our next speaker is Dr. Holger Schmieling. Uh, he's head of European Economics at the Bank of America in London. He's responsible for the analysis of European economies with a focus on the euro area. He's been with Bank of America since May 2002. Before that, he spent eight years at Merrill Lynch, and uh, he's been also an economist at the IMF in Washington. He writes a regular column for the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung and an occasional column for us at the FT, which we're very happy about. Studied economics at the University of Munich and the LSE. Holger. Well, yeah, thank you. According to my kids, I have a pretty annoying habit. Whenever they get really excited about something going wrong in the family, I just ask back, what's the problem? And upon calm reflection, more often than not, the issue turns out to be manageable. So let me try to apply the same to the credit crunch issue. It is a very serious issue, yes, but my guess is if it's well-managed, and so far it's largely well-managed, it will actually turn out to have been manageable in retrospect. 
Here in the city, in the heart of the global wholesale financial market, we tend to take ourselves very serious. And here in the city, we indeed, for what I know, see serious issues. Structured products, leveraged finance, private equity buyouts, securitization, you name it. There is a lot that at the moment isn't really working. But the wholesale markets are not what, for me as an economist, counts most. The wholesale markets are there to oil the wheels of credit, but ultimately what counts is credit to end users, to households, to corporates who want to invest. And just if we look at the data so far, we don't see it. In the credit data of credit not within the wholesale markets, where there is a huge deleveraging going on, but in credit to households, to corporates, non-financial corporates, outside real estate-related sectors, I have to say, there doesn't seem to be a slowdown. Maybe it's early days, I know, but it's still worth pointing out. Also, I know that the data are likely to be distorted. For instance, as banks are being forced to keep loans on their books, which they would have liked to shift. For instance, as existing credit lines are now being drawn upon more than in the past. So, yes, there is a pretty high probability that credit problems will appear in a macroeconomic sense in terms of credit to end users. But it's worth pointing out again, so far we are not there yet except isolated areas. If we look at the U.S. economic situation, which I do from afar, not from being in there, my impression is that much of what we can see in the U.S., stagnation at the moment, has explanations fully unrelated to what we are currently seeing in financial markets. It's the correction in residential construction, which started almost two years ago and has now taken the volume of residential construction down by about 30%. It's some ramifications of that. At least as important, it's the oil shock. But it's not yet the credit crunch issue we discuss. Also, if I look at the European credit data, where I can see a slowdown in mortgage credit, I can fully explain it by less demand for mortgage credits in the Eurozone, especially Spain, rather than by the credit crunch issue of a supply constraint. What seems to be happening so far according to the macro data is banks are in, in trouble. They need to be more profitable again, to recapitalize. But the Fed and sovereign wealth funds around the world are helping them a lot. Banks are demanding fatter margins, <clears throat> but households are not being heard much yet because due to lower rates from the Fed, the banks can have their fatter margins without demanding higher mortgage rates. So my guess is yes, there will be some credit crunch problems to come. We're not seeing them yet. They will be coming. But we shouldn't forget that sovereign wealth funds helping to recapitalize the Western banking system and the Fed are already working very hard to do the recapitalization and shore up the profitability of banks so that, so that I think in the end a meltdown is avoidable. Thank you. Well, thank you, Holger. I feel like a born-again optimist. But I suspect my outlook might change after listening to the next speaker, who is our very own Gillian Tett, who I think has done more, and I don't wish to, this to be a PR exercise, but why not, 
I think more to, to explain what has been going on in the credit markets over the last 12 months than really any other journalist, certainly in this country and, and I think in America too. So Gillian uh, has been with the paper uh, for a f- around 15 years. She's been the Tokyo bureau chief. Uh, she has worked in Brussels. She worked on the, uh, with me on the launch of the euro in the mid-1990s, late 1990s. She's worked as capital markets editor. Now she is assistant editor markets. She's also uniquely qualified to explain the, uh, what is going on in the credit markets because she spent a year in Central Asia looking at goat herds as part of her study of anth- anthropology. Over to you, Gillian. Thank you. Well, there's rather more in common between Tajik goat herders and the tribes in the city of London than you might expect. Um, firstly, apologies, because I'm also, like Ian, suffering from a bit of a seasonal lurgy. So if my voice cracks up, it's not because I'm overcome with excitement of the credit crunch. I am currently not in the camp of people who would say that we're in the middle of a global financial meltdown as such. But I am, like my colleague Martin Wolf, in the camp of people who would say that the risks are building quite considerably. And looking at the world right now as a journalist, it seems to be the case that there are two entwined stories going on here. Firstly, the financial system is beset by a dose of good old-fashioned credit losses. Um, I say good old-fashioned credit losses because in the last few years, many of the bouts of financial market turbulence have been driven essentially by equity market swings, um, currency swings, things like that. But right now, we are looking at a bout of good old-fashioned credit losses, which have started with subprime, and the numbers for the subprime losses keep getting um, bigger. This time last year, people were saying 50 billion, and said the problem could be contained. The government's now put that up. To, the U.S. government's now put that, that up to about 100, 150 billion. People like Goldman Sachs are saying more like 400 billion, and some banks have even higher private figures. But on top of that, we're also looking at um, losses coming through on consumer debt, commercial property, and further down the road, leveraged loans as well. We don't know how big those losses are going to be, and we also don't know, equally crucially, where they're going to be found. If you're being optimistic and you're sitting in America right now, you would say the good news is that probably America has probably exported up to half of its subprime pain. That's not very good news if you're a Taiwanese bank or a Japanese bank, or or not Japanese, a German bank, or if, say, you're even a big institutional investor in the UK. But the critical question is going to be where those losses are felt, as much as how big they are. And that in turn raises a question about whether the banks are going to have enough capital to absorb that slowly or not, even after injections of money from the sovereign wealth funds. So to a certain extent, we are in a story of the numbers game and the question of just how big the bad loans are going to be or not be. But we're also in a very interesting cultural and psychological story because I would argue that what's gone on in the last year is essentially a nasty shock for investors as they've come to realize that not simply has an asset class gone wrong, but an entire process, an entire way of doing finance has gone wrong as well. 
This decade, there has been an absolutely extraordinary bout of financial innovation, which has resulted in banks slicing and dicing loans on an unprecedented scale. Until very recently, the vast majority of people outside the financial industry had absolutely no idea that a transformation of the scale had occurred. And until very recently, the people who did know that it happened thought that it was fundamentally a good idea, very healthy, because the regulators had effectively blessed it. And also, the credit rating agencies were providing a crucial compass for people to work out what was going on. But faith in the rating agencies has crumbled, if not collapsed. And the idea that originate and distribute model, that the slicing and dicing risk is also good, always good for a financial system, has also been severely tested. And we're seeing whole swathes of investors effectively going on strike and refusing to buy products that have been sliced and diced. And that matters because, to a very large degree, the extraordinary bout of securitization, financial innovation, has helped pump up the credit bubble this decade. And as faith in that crumbles, so too we're seeing the credit bubble collapse back in on itself. Now, history shows that when you have that kind of psychological shock, investors do eventually adapt. I lived through the Japanese banking saga in the late 1990s and saw a whole swathe of investors lose faith in the convoy system and in the tenets that had underpinned Japanese finance and then saw them eventually re regain their faith in Japanese finance after a few years. But rebuilding faith can take a long time. And the more that the credit losses mount, the greater the danger that faith will continue to crumble. And the more that faith crumbles and the credit bubble implodes, the greater the danger that credit, the credit losses will grow. So we're at a very delicate juncture right now. And we're not yet in a meltdown state. But the risk is certainly there. Thank you, Julian. Um, I'm now going to hand over to our final panelist, Jim O'Neill, who's head of global economic research for Goldman Sachs, and he's been in this position since September 2001. Um, he's received his PhD from the University of Surrey after graduating in economics from Sheffield University. He's also spent time with the Bank of America uh, and Swiss Bank Corporation, and he joined Goldman Sachs as a partner in October 1995, when I first remember talking to him about the euro. He rang up and said, is it really going to happen? Yes. Jim's other uh, claim to fame uh, is that he is the creator of the acronym BRICS. Thank you very much, Lionel. Um, I, I have the pleasure of coming after hearing the others, so maybe I should just summarise my comments by saying thank God for BRICS. Um, because I think if it weren't for some of those countries right now, we would be facing a considerably more troubling uh, environment than the one that I think we are. Uh, I have very, six very quick comments. Um, the first of which, as I think Holger mentioned, um, the origin of all of this is really uh, an economic issue, uh, and it's the weakness of U.S. house prices. All those of us who are British uh, have seen many of these cycles, and in fact many European countries have, but this is the first modern national uh, U.S. house price decline. Um, and so... The underlying origin of all of this, whilst there's some very scary things going on in credit, uh, is really economic. And to some extent, therefore, 
<coughs> it won't uh, all vanish until we get US house prices back to a, uh, a more normal level. Um, second thing I'd like to bring in, which slightly contradicts some uh, things said earlier, or, or it brings in a different angle, and certainly uh, reading Martin's very interesting and provocative pieces today it raises some issues about how that fits with past things that he's written. Um, I suspect an, a broader part of this is that the US house price decline is coming at a time where the rest of the world is, is not wanting to finance the US current account deficit as much as it's been merrily, happily doing for God knows how long. And, and, and what's really going on uh, is that the US current account deficit is starting to turn. And so it is natural that there is angst in some financial centers around the world where, where they don't, the, the desire for buying the kind of things that underlined uh, the housing market uh, overextension and many other things, including many of these credit instruments, is gone. And uh, there's not a great deal we can do that. I would also add as an aside to that, it often surprises me that people themselves express surprise where they see pockets of, of buyers of these things in peculiar parts of the world. But those countries that are being financed in the US current account deficit the most are, by definition, going to be the ones where quite a lot of this is found, and it shouldn't be a surprise. Um, thirdly, uh, it is, thank God, uh, to BRICS. Uh, my own reaction to reading Martin's piece today, particularly where he, he, he tried to pour cold water on the idea of decoupling, where I currently at the moment I have some mixed opinions. Um, but it, if this was as bad as everybody is penning it out to be, and it's a very colourful story, of course, uh, why have we got oil prices at 100 bucks a barrel and uh, most other commodities hitting record highs every day? And there is certainly some kind of global disconnect there, unless the US is less important for the world than it's been in the past. And uh, uh, the fifth comment I would say in that regard, even though uh, I think we, uh, and Gillian mentioned the 400 billion number one of my colleagues has written about, and my own US economist, Jan Hatzius, uh, I think has got as much attention about a particular piece he wrote suggesting that the ultimate deleveraging could total even two trillion. So even despite those kind of things coming out of us, uh, we're still forecasting that global GDP growth will be just above 3.5% this year and next, which whilst that is weak by the standards of the past five years, it is actually above the average of the past 25 years. Um, so I don't quite think uh, all is ill. And indeed, um, the final thing to bring it together from my opening comments is if you stand back from it, given that the US has been dependent on so much of the world's savings for so long, and US house prices, in our judgment, for at least three years have been quite identifiably clearly overvalued, that not all of this is bad. And if we can get through all of this uh, with the US house price market back to some kind of sensible levels, and the US current account deficit close as a 3% of GDP, uh, then maybe, maybe this might turn out to be something that's not so bad as people currently think. Thank you, Jim. Before I open uh, the floor to questions, I, I just have one observation on the credit markets, and I'm reminded of a story which I don't think is apocryphal concerning a trip that uh, Alan Greenspan uh, made to Britain shortly after the collapse of the dot-com bubble, and he, he uh, spoke to a, an audience, uh, as many distinguished souls as in here, and his essential message, in his words, was, you know, actually on balance the impact on the financial system of the 
collapse of the dot-com bubble has really, in America, it's, uh, it's not been substantial at all. We haven't had any serious losses uh, in America, no impact. And one of the speakers, a polite English man, stood up and said, Chairman Greenspan, it's absolutely fascinating uh, expose of the post-dot-com bubble in America. And I'm just somewhat surprised that uh, there aren't any serious impact uh, on the American financial system. I mean, but there must be losses. Um, where are the losses? Greenspan paused, the great man paused and said, European insurance companies. <laughs> uh, the point of this, of course, is that we are in this period of discovery. And I wanted to just ask each of the panelists quickly to say, well, where we know, we thought we knew quite a lot late last year. We thought we'd know a lot more after the bank reporting season, but we're still finding out. People are still owning up. And these are to numbers approaching billions. We just had a case, an extraordinary case with Credit Suisse this week. So perhaps each one, where are we in the period of discovery and where, do, where can we expect more losses in this deleveraging process? Do you want to start, Jim? Um, well, I'll answer it broadly in, in the context of what I said about the current account balance. Um, you know, the biggest finances of the U.S. savings shortfall the past decade or so have been Europe, broadly speaking, Germany in particular. Um, uh, a number of Asian uh, countries, obviously, China and Japan, uh, and, of course, the Middle East. So uh, I think, and you guys had a fantastic piece on it uh, yesterday with a table of the current reported losses by various banks, uh, which I, I think, was it, Gillian, did you write? You might have even, did you write? It was like 120 or something? Uh, I, I would, and if you look at it closely, most of that is from the U.S. financial system, and I, I think it's to do with the... the, the acceptance of the mark-to-market pressures, uh, and my own judgment is probably most of the U.S. financial system has acknowledged their exposures to it, whereas most of what is out there in the rest of the world is yet to happen because their systems don't encourage the same kind of clarity in mark-to-market accounting that, that is now, since the dot-com bust in particular, so powerful in the United States. I'd, I'd make the U.K. a slight exception there, actually. But I mean, continental Europe and many parts of Asia and, and the Middle East. I'd, I'd echo what Jim said there. I think that's, that's very true. Um, I'd just add a, a little bit of colour to it that to the extent that there's been mis-selling or um, maybe mis-selling is overstating it, but um, creative selling uh, of, of these securitised products, uh, the obvious place is, is to find the sucker. Who was the guy who bought it? Who didn't really know what was going on? Who didn't appreciate what the product was? I think uh, the big banks have now declared as much as they can, as much as they're likely to in the States. Uh, it will continue to filter out in Europe for the reasons that Jim's just said, but I think there are plenty of other fools out there that have bought this that are just praying that prices will go up uh, and that they won't have to declare it. Prices don't go up, eventually they'll have to declare it. Simon? I, I don't know, and I, I wish I did, and I, I thought I might have been a, a little less uncertain until I heard about Credit Suisse a couple of days ago, so I, I simply don't know, but I suspect it has a, a long way to go, and I just hope what Jim says about the US is right. Olga? Um, I don't want to contradict that in any way. I add a couple of observations. First of all, one of the differences between the US and Europe indeed seems to be that over here the process of discovery is slower. Second difference seems to be that over here in Europe it's the governments, that is the national taxpayer, rather than foreign sovereign wealth funds who are coming to the rescue. And the third observation is I guess we'll probably never fully learn where the losses really are 
for instance, I, just the beginning of this week, had an email from a London fund manager telling me that unfortunately one of his money market funds is having a bit of a valuation issue. I'm not invested in that, so I don't have to worry, but I guess that a major part, I don't quite know, 30%, 40% of these losses will just be spread around the world in hundreds and hundreds of such funds without us ever learning exactly the aggregate amount. Hoggy, I can't let you go before asking you for a little word on that. What is it about these little German banks that get into trouble <laughs> in places like Saxony? I mean, do they not know what they're doing? I mean, can you just explain this? Well, I can basically explain what I've been reading in the Financial Times about that as well. <laughs> so it won't be new, but I can, from my understanding, confirm. The banking system in Germany is structured in a way that you have a number of players whom, me coming from the public, uh, private sector, I would say, should have been targets of takeovers for quite a while because they basically have very little rationale on their own. So they should be part of a bigger unit. But as they are in existing in an independent way with a small capital base, of course, they try to shore or boost their profit by venturing into the most adventurous things, which they did, in some cases probably with excellent results. We're just not reading about them. But in some cases with not so excellent results, and that's what we're reading about. Gillian, thanks, Holger. I would just echo what Holger said and point out that there is a widespread perception amongst many of the bankers I speak to um, that there is more um, bad news to come out of Europe. Um, but there's also a very interesting buy-side-sell-side split at the moment, which is that we've seen a lot of the sell-side confess to the problems. I would agree with Holger that I think that the buy-side is only now waking up to the problems inside their portfolio and I suspect that's going to be quite a major theme for the next few months, not just in the US and Europe, but also in Asia. Okay, we're going to throw it open now. Um, would you any, just raise your hand and I'll call you. Okay, gentleman at the back. Hi there, it's Martin Coder from Lansing's Public Affairs. Um, nobody's mentioned the uh, politics of the credit crunch yet. Um, just interested to get a bit of commentary on um, what the effects are going to be inter interplay between the economics and the politics. I mean, I can think of three pretty obvious examples. One is confidence in the, the Treasury, the Chancellor in particular, and the FSA and the Bank of England's um, handling over the past six months, um, most recently with the nationalization of Northern Rock. Uh, another one is uh, the US election, uh, which presents a bit of a paradox, because I mean, I thought usually the, the maxim was that when times are hard, people plump for the experienced leader, but that doesn't seem to be what's happening over there. And thirdly, is this question about the sovereign wealth funds. Um, just interested to hear how much you share the, the fears of some that that because some of that money, vast sums of money, comes from some pretty dodgy places in the world, that they that potentially could be used for disingenuous or even malicious political purposes in the future. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Jim, do you want to take that? I'm going to ignore the first two parts, given what I do. But uh, on the sovereign wealth fund, I just want to say a couple of things. And uh, you used the phrase dodgy. I, I, I am staggered by the general uh, attitude to people in, in the West about sovereign wealth funds. You've got to get used to it, guys. It, it's a fact of life. It is an extension of BRICS. We, are, we have been living in a rapidly and still dramatically changing world for nearly a decade. Some so-called sovereign wealth funds have actually been around for 50 years, I might point out too, but they, they are a function of, of the rising wealth in new parts of the world. And uh, as I said at the start, 
thank God for uh, BRICS, you should probably also say thank God for solving wealth funds, because uh, when our policymakers do, uh, and here the UK I think is way ahead of virtually everybody else in the G7, including Washington, um, when they recognize that these guys are simply a function or a, a participant in a globalized financial system, whatever they, whether it's privately managed or publicly managed, money coming out of places with new wealth are going to be vital for ensuring that this credit crisis as such can be managed. And people need to stop being so paranoid about them. It is, it is almost embarrassing. Simon, quick word on politics. Um, on the politics, I mean, there's a Latin phrase, I think, which is res ipsa locator, the thing speaks for itself. And I think that, that really applies to the situation in the UK at, at the moment. Um, an impact that really worries me is on the city of London and perceptions internationally that there is a kind of chipping away of the attractiveness of London as a place for internationally global finance to sort of base itself. And with private equity, 60% of all European private equity is based in London. Uh, and I think that lead could be sustained and indeed developed. And I'm just sorry to see measures that I think uh, threaten that. If I could just make one remark about America, I mean, what really worries me about the US is the protectionism that's clearly coming through, particularly on the Democrat side. And there's a, an example of it uh, in the FT this morning, uh, with the 3Com, um, the, the involvement of a Chinese company, admittedly a very secretive Chinese company, in attempts to, to bid for 3Com. Um, I, I do worry that the sounds coming out of the US election campaign are very uh, threateningly protectionist, and I, I share Jim's view of, um, of sovereign wealth funds. I mean, I think they, they are a positive influence now, uh, and, and all their involvement ought to be welcomed. Okay, two quick comments on the American campaign. Don't write off John McCain. He could certainly beat Hillary Clinton, in my view, and he may well beat Obama. And second, don't be obsessed by the presidential campaign. The Congress is going to be absolutely critical in measuring uh, protectionist sentiment. Uh, in the front, sir. Julian Samways, Harmonic Capital Partners. Two quick questions. One is, what are the lessons to be learned from this from the banking system's perspective? We've heard a lot, for example, about remuneration structures, which encourages short-termism in the packaging together of financial products which are sold on from banks uh, to all the investors. So that's the uh, first question. Second question, is this going to hasten a fundamental restructuring of the global economy in terms of economic power moving rapidly away from the West? to the newer economies in Asia and the Middle East. Right. Who wants to take comp? I'll make a couple of comments about the banking system. I would say on one level, the um, moral is very simple, which is that if something looks too good to be true, it probably is. Um, in recent years, bankers thought they'd found the um, financial equivalent of calorie-free chocolate in that they could create slice and dice loans till the cows came home and create credit endlessly and book the profits. Um, without having to do anything as unpleasant as oversee the risks or track to the loans, etc. Um, and the last few years have been boom time for the city in terms of the credit world, and now the crowds are coming home to roost. Simon, you should take comp. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things about uh, private equity is although people in it are very frequently very well remunerated, they are paid for success. Uh, and it's a pretty ruthless business in, the, in that context. And I, I just observe that I think a lot of banks aren't like that. Okay, who else? Uh, Neil Collins, Evening Standard. Um, I think one of the reasons why uh, so many of these banks 
bought this toxic stuff was that it was rated AAA by the rating agencies. And one of the things that puzzles me is why we've not seen wholesale legal action against the rating agencies. And I would like the panel's views as to why we haven't or whether we are just about to. Um, I think the wholesale legal action against ratings agencies has never worked in the past when they've made a pig's ear of it, so I don't think it will work again this time. They can always stand behind it. It was our best judgment at the time. Uh, it, it was the best judgment that coincided with everybody else's best judgment. Uh, it wasn't like they were saying, this is wonderful, and everybody else was being dubious about it. As Gillian said, we all thought it was wonderful. Just a few people were saying, you know, hang on about this. It's, it's not going to work. But the vast majority of us were quite happy. I don't really think you can blame the ratings agencies for not predicting the future perfectly when nobody else is predicting the future perfectly. Um, again, just on the sort of general theme of the questions coming most recently and related to this one, you know, th this, this is not the first credit crunch and it won't be the last. I, I, I've been around long enough to, for this to be my third big one. And, you know, the, the colour of each one is, is often different, but... In essence, it's not just about uh, about financial institutions taking excess. It's about human beings taking excess, and that that's what you get uh, as part of the price for for an increasingly globalized economy and economic prosperity. Uh, everybody takes something to an excess. Yes, obviously, uh, a lot of banks have, have been part of it here, but at the end of the day, there's been a lot of people in the United States believing that US house prices would go on rising forever. And they found out, as people here in this country have found out in the past, that it turns out to be not true. And so, yes, there's been a lot of excess in the products created that go with that. And in the credit intermediation business has exploded the past, uh, particularly the past five years. Um, and that is in the process of getting back to some kind of more sensible state of affairs. But it's not the only time that's happened in the past. And it might, it, we will not recover in the same form, but, you know, life is not finished. Right, this gentleman here. Mark Liff from uh, ING. Um, in this discovery process, I wonder whether we should be looking again at the hedge funds, because uh, over the last uh, few weeks there's been quite a few congratulatory articles about how well the hedge funds have done, and, uh, you know, this is mainly a problem for the banks. Given that the hedge funds are the biggest sellers of protection in the uh, credit market, should we not be uh, taking another look at the hedge funds? Yeah. Holger, do you want to take that then, Gillian? I was just going to say that I absolutely agree when I said that I think the issues are potentially moving from the sell side to the buy side. That's one of the things I have in mind. Um, I would simply add to that the fact that as banks um, come under balance sheet pressure, as they cut back lending, the question is not simply whether they're going to cut back lending to real economy um, groups like um, companies and consumers, but um, the degree to which they're going to cut back lending to hedge funds. And I think already some hedge funds are finding um, that life is getting pretty tough in terms of getting access to the fuel they need to do their business with. Yes, I can basically say that hedge funds are l probably a big part of this huge unknown universe where I think a major part of the losses will eventually reside. We will simply never really hear in all detail where these losses are. But there is probably now for a period <coughs> of, say, up to six months, a heightened event risk that some of the major hedge funds <laughs> may hit trouble. But as we've learned with the Canadian case and commodities a while ago, even that need not be of any catastrophic impact beyond the immediate hedge fund concern. 
So I think, yes, that's where probably some of the losses are, but no, from a financial system perspective, from the meltdown question, I wouldn't worry about it too much. Okay, gentleman there. Yes, thank you. Um, Stephen Herring, BDO Stoyer Haywood. Um, one word that's not been mentioned uh, this morning yet um, is um, stagflation, which is, seems to be, uh, I don't know what the, the hit count in Google would be, but it seems to be mentioned more now. I wonder what um, the panel's views are of the um, problems that the, um, the fact that, um, infl that inflation seems to be re-emerging, perhaps at lower levels than we've faced in the past, but in many economies, how, what impact that will have on the monetary authorities being able to take interest rates down to the rate which would um, see a, a path forward to out of the issue. Holger. Yeah, thank you. First of all, I would say we are looking at really stagflation light rather than stagflation. If I look at the world as a whole, including the BRICS and the like, the growth rates so far are still pretty good. Leading indicators are falling, but they are still at fairly good levels. We see only very, very modest evidence of a pickup in domestically generated inflation in the Western economies in the world, which means for central banks, what they have to do, if need be, is to keep growth just a little bit below trend in, say, Britain, in the Eurozone, and in the US, which still means if growth is threatening to fall far below trend, US stagnation at the moment, they can ease monetary policy significantly, as they've been doing. So at the moment, I think this is also in the category of manageable problems rather than a bad, really terrible thing. Jim? Um, you know, linked to what I said before about our growth, I, I think stagflation globally should be out of people's minds. Uh, we've been having growth of 5% globally for the past five years. It's probably slowed to somewhere between three and four. Um, that's not bad. Uh, that being said, I have to say, in the past couple of weeks, I, I, I've been generally relaxed about the whole inflationary thing regarding the increase in commodity prices as a relative price change. But there are a couple of things going on that are starting to make me wonder whether, whether the, there may be a, a bit more of a pickup in inflation starting. Um, not just the ongoing evidence of the remarkable strength of commodity prices, but there are a couple of policy things starting to change in some parts of the world. Um, Obama has some very interesting things which, uh, if all of us were voting, might not think he was as great as, as, as others do, although I personally think the guy's a very interesting uh, leader for the US. Um, and also in Germany, the past uh, three months, there is quite a dramatic shift going on in terms of uh, the interplay between policymakers and the, and the population in which, which these guys have another piece with a very apt coverage on about the German uh, steel uh, settlement this morning. You know, it's now becoming quite trendy uh, for policymakers in Germany to support the idea of wage increases, which Germany sort of needs in terms of consumption, but in terms of uh, the interplay with globalization and low inflation at a time when commodity prices are still rising and import prices from China are now rising in the West, it, it raises a couple more issues. So I, I think it it is a delicate issue, and it's interesting in the FOMC minutes last night that the Fed made a lot of reference to inflation expectations, which they need to. Good. Next. I'm going to go way to the back because they've not had a chance. And then to the front. Peter Warburton, uh, Ruffer, LLP. Um, I think the panel are being quite much too nice about these issues. Um, we've had the, the longest and most protracted um, 
global credit expansion, probably the first truly global credit expansion. Um, it's really lasted since the beginning of the 1990s. Um, and it now it has culminated, I think, almost decisively uh, in, in the past year. Why would we not expect the next three years to be characterized by not only slowing credit growth, but actually contracting credit growth, you know, um, along the lines perhaps of the contracting balance sheets of the UK mortgage lenders, which now is, you know, seems to be probable. Um, I, I just think we're, we're, we're tiptoeing around the issues here. Surely um, we should be uh, looking towards uh, a correction that is commensurate um, with the, the prior expansion. Okay. No more nis Mr. Nice Guy, Jim. Well, I'm not sure where you were in 1998, but that was a pretty severe credit uh, shortfall inside the financial intermediation system. And despite the horror in which many people are writing about, some of the counterparty risk going on amongst banks then, as of yet, was much worse for a few weeks than this has been. Um, so I don't agree with, with where you're coming from. Yeah. Uh, I do agree with where you're coming from a little bit. Um, I think one of the big worries in the, the banking sector will be that their risk management hasn't really worked very well. Um, and they've got to realise that. Uh, I spoke to a lot of bankers about how they did their credit risk management. And I, of course, come from an academic background. I'm used to risk return trade-offs and nice smooth lines and uh, um, utility curves and so forth. They don't seem to think that way. It was a lot of, oh, we've lent too much to Ford. We want to sell a bit of it. Um, it didn't seem particularly sophisticated to me, and yet they were perfectly sanguine about extending loans very dramatically. Um, I think there'll be a, a big realisation that credit risk management and perhaps even risk management more generally in banks is just not as sophisticated and as effective as we thought it might be, and that will contribute to this uh, cutback in lending. Another reason why I have the general attitude I have is that <clears throat> I was much more concerned between August and the end of the year when, when US policymakers were effectively in denial uh, since the turn of the year, the complete opposite has been the case. Uh, the US, uh, the Federal Reserve Board is slashing interest rates. The US yield curve is steep and dramatically, which is vital for the banking system. Um, and it's changed spectacularly since last August. And the administration has just introduced a fiscal stimulus of 1% of GDP. Uh, and it's been passed about two months more quickly than even my most optimistic guys in Washington thought which is tantamount to the biggest U.S. economic stimulus in a month period that I've seen in my career. Um, David Green, for the purposes of this question, ex-Bank of England and ex-FSA, and a question about monetary policy and supervisory policy. The question really is follow-up to the previous question about um, excessive credit expansion in the past and now con uh, contraction now. There is a widespread presumption, not universally held, that it's for monetary policy to deal with the um, position we're now in, where there is uh, perceived to be contraction of credit. Um, is it for monetary policy or for supervisory policy to act in periods when there's um, excessive expansion of credit? Who, who would like to answer that? I think that supervisory <laughs> policy is an extremely blunt tool. So I would hesitate to say that we should use it in a situation like now where things are developing very fast. Leaning back, we can probably say that perhaps a few years ago, supervision could have been a bit more different. The rules might have been a bit different. But I think in the situation that we're in now, it is monetary policy first and changes in regulation a very distant third or fourth, 
of course, an effective implementation of the rules that exist and effective cooperation between the players concerned is a different issue. Ian? Uh, I spent a couple of years at the Bank of England, and um, two of my, my bosses um, I thought were very prescient in, 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 in seeing these problems coming, in particular my, my media boss, David Rule, who's written widely on the problems of the monolines and the over-reliance of the whole financial sector on, on, on those monolines. Sorry, not the whole financial sector, the whole securitization sector on the monolines. And we also did many, many studies on the behavior of the ratings agencies and how, again, too much reliance has been placed on them. Having said that, I don't think it's a good idea to rely on the public sector to do a much better job than the private sector could have done. Again, following my comments earlier on the ratings agencies, I don't think anybody can really say with great certainty what the right thing is to do. I wouldn't like to see the public sector getting too involved now. Um, equally, I don't really think it's the, the role of monetary policy to try and rescue us. Monetary policy is working hard enough with the stagflation issue that we've talked about. Okay, we've got room for two last questions. Peter and then the gentleman there who's been waiting. Peter, Norm. We've heard a lot about BRICS, especially from Jim O'Neill. Um, this is a question about something I confess ignorance, but are the nasties building up inside the Chinese financial system, which could spill over and maybe give a sort of second leg? I'm thinking of you know, bad loans and um, all the various things. The sheer lack of transparency of what's going on there. Of course not, Peter. Everything is perfectly wonderful in China. Um, you know, <laughs> possibly. Um, I've been hearing people saying the Chinese financial system is going to collapse since the Asian crisis in 1998. Um, there is undoubtedly uh, not as much clarity in the Chinese financial reporting as there is in the United States. Um, but China is a country of extremely large financial surplus at the moment. Um, as another piece um, Martin talked about a couple of weeks ago, and a number of other people are writing interesting things about, the Chinese government's financial health is also spectacularly strong, uh, and they have the ability to... Uh, in fact, might need to, if the U.S. slowdown gets particularly severe, have come up with a fiscal stimulus, which can, can include, uh, if need be, if you were right, uh, supporting the domestic banking system easily, uh, or probably, uh, in my judgment, more sensibly, coming up with a, actually an economic stimulus more for domestic Chinese consumers. Then quickly, my, my classrooms upstairs in this building are, are half full of Chinese students, so if there are problems in the banking sector at the moment, they'll go away soon. We're, we're, we're right. <laughs> Sir. Uh, Rob McIver, I'm Head of Corporate Affairs at Citigroup. This is probably a fitting question to end on because I'm going to inv invite the panel to inject a little optimism into the proceedings. Where there are losers, normally there are winners, so I'd be interested in knowing where you think, if anywhere, the winners will be from the credit crunch, or if it's true that we are facing complete meltdown, should we all just be investing in boatyards? Winners from right to left. Um, people practicing rather more old-fashioned banking, I suspect. Um, we're seeing a flight towards simplicity. Um, I wouldn't say that securitization is dead as a concept at all. It does have many merits, but going forward, I suspect it's going to be most successfully practiced by bankers who can offer much simpler, much more standardized, and much more commoditized forms of that. Any winners? Any winners? Well, I think we all were winners in the five, six years 
before the crisis with very rapid global economic growth, falling unemployment, thanks to globalization, and just that trend, which had been partly fueled by credit, went a little too far. But it's so far a modest payback relative to the gains almost all of us have had before. I think in the medium term, the sector I represent, private equity, will be a winner because they're sitting on quite large funds at the moment and they will wait for the right time to invest. So, so post uh, this period in a cycle has always been quite a good time for private equity over the last 25 years. I'll echo the three people in front of me and also at business schools. We've seen some very good applicants from students <laughs> that can't get jobs. <laughs> US exporters. Well, I won't attempt to summarize what has been a fascinating discussion. I think overall it probably bears some resemblance to last night's football game. Uh, That is the key football game in France where Manchester United was down but then scored a late equaliser. So the optimists have come from behind to have a score draw. Thank you. Can I just thank you all very much for coming, thank Lionel for chairing, Cass Business School, the Financial Times and the BVCA. There is more breakfast outside and uh, could you also applaud the panel again please for their time and expertise. (laughs) 